there was um, an opportunity to hear Dave share some sacred information. And I surprised, I'm surprised to hear myself say that because it's not really what I signed up for, but I was so moved by something that he shared with us the other day. Um, and I regretted that we didn't record it. There was another phenomenon while Dave was performing this, what he's about to do for us today. And it sounded like it was a chorus that was singing because of the nature of it. So I asked Dave if he would repeat it again. Let's see if the same phenomenon happens. Regardless, the content and the information was just beautiful. So we decided we would record that quickly. Uh, so we had that for posterity. And then we'll break for a moment and come back with the regular podcast. So with that, thank you, Dave. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Hello, everybody. What a pleasure to uh, be here. So um, we can talk about what it is later. It's just a prayer. because of their behavior and how, how, how sort of uh, wonderful they are. 
what is a sign of praise? And at the beginning of the Mandana, uh, it's a, a little praise to Ganesha, and Ganesha is the patron goddess of new beginnings, but also, more importantly, the patron goddess of mothers that have had a newborn baby. So Ganesha is always a very lucky, very good spirit to call into your life if you're interested in Hindu liturgy and Hindu religion. Um, and this you know, goes back to me talking earlier on earlier programs, responding to members of the tribe of ISIS about an ashram, and that was to study ethnomusicology percentage. The course that I started Oxidella College was 17, or 16, and I went to Oxy, uh, joined the Rabbi Shane Farm Music Circle, and I played with uh, Alaraka and the members back here in the States, and the first group, we had two first back to this, but the world ran and the player. And, you know, I played Toggle unprofessionally, but all my life, since I was 15. And it's an amazing, um, amazing drum. And what the Pablo does is it centers the ethereal and cosmic sound of the sitar. And it brings it back so that you can cycle through different boggles. And remember that everything that we have in the West that's tied into music anyway comes from ancient Sanskrit. All music that we have today are a derivation of both someone's own creativity. Because there are many instruments that are around since the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century that didn't exist surely in ancient times. But if you look at the way music is structured, you have um, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti, Do. And in Sanskrit musical liturgy, you have Sa, Re, Ga, Ma, Pa, Da, Ni, Sa. Sa, Re, Ga, Ma, Pa, Da, Ni, Sa. And Sa, Re, Ga, Ma, Pa, Da, Ni, Sa is the same as Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti, Do. But that's where the, the Latin uh, tone scale is taken from, is from Sa, Re, Ga, Ma, Pa, Da, Ni, Sa. And last uh, conversation I had with Lowell, uh, I got a little, you know, I got a little ranty and full and I decided not to print it or put it up and, and Robin was there and she added her wisdom to my ranty. You know, brought it back down to her. Uh, but we did a bandana, uh, a bandana, and uh, it was nice. But then it sort of went on. And so Lola and I wanted to share this Sanskrit prayer with you guys because um, it's an ancient prayer. And when we think about things like the Vedic texts, and we think about there's a lot of people that are on uh, media that claim to know that they've, you know, they've read the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, or um, uh, the, the Vedic texts so that they can perhaps learn a little bit about the story of the Pana. Uh, there's a lot of things like that. Remember that uh, many of the ancient Sanskrit stories were cleverly composed into ancient hymns. So when you listen to a raga, which could be a sunrise raga or a sunset raga or a raga for world peace, it's a very large composition of uh, different musical instruments. It can be, or it can just be done with a sitar. Normally there's what's called a tambura in the background, and it's as a uh, sort of a beautiful woman's lower half, bottom part, and then it goes straight up, and it's a big hollow carved piece of wood. And it has a rounded fret front with four main strings, the tamburas to the front. And what the tambura does is it immediately sets the pace for complete relaxation, mentally, complete relaxation, uh, physically. And it helps you breathe, and the, the ethereal sound of the tambura droning, it's a drone, so it plays constantly in the uh, It helps set the stage for the introduction of sitar, which of course has 40 sympathetic strings below the top mainstream strings, I believe it's 12. And so 
Shankar is very difficult. And Ravi Shankar used to have very big, thick uh, calluses on his fingers so that he could jam the way he did. Because it's also played with a, a finger plectrum, and it's this really nasty steel uh, diamond shape that slips over the first knuckle of your index finger, or it could be the middle finger, but your index finger normally, and then your other fingers are used for strumming the main strings to activate the sympathetic strings. You this very deep, powerful, resonant, cosmic sound. Well, they had the foresight because human beings remember important stories better if you turn it into a song. And so they converted all these ancient Sanskrit hymns into amazing classical North Indian Hindustani music. And so there are ragas that will go on for six hours and then we'll introduce four or five different types of drum, perhaps two or three different types of flute, including transverse flute. There'll be sarodes, sarangis, golocks, all kinds of different uh, musical instruments that they'll bring in at different times to accentuate different aspects of the raga. We've all heard Ravi Shankar play and, you know, dear Ravi's soul, uh, it was heartbreaking when he passed away. Uh, they had a beautiful, beautiful service for him in San Diego. Uh, and his daughter, Anushka Shankar, about, uh, she is very popular. She's also a, uh, a teacher and a maestro and a master of the sitar. How could she not be? She's so, so talented. And she sings. Uh, Ravi's first wife, uh, Lakshmi. Now, Lakshmi Shankar had the world's, one of the world's most pure uh, voices, tonal and she could sing with a very minute, like half-second uh, tonal inflections, and she also did a polyphonic singing, and she also knew cyclical breathing, breathing through those notes at the same time, so you both have lung capacity and fresh, fresh air, but you could blow a Merle or a Shanai, play a transverse flute without stopping, so it's really just Years and years and years of, of creating this style of music, thousands. But so I have when to, I, I want to stop you for just a moment, and I don't want you to stop the story. But I heard th those three people play. The opportunity came along, and at first, I kind of skipped over the eastern part of the music. It was the anniversary of George Harrison's passing. There was a concert. That had been oh, organized huge, by Eric yeah, Clapton. Huge, huge concert series so, around the world. Yeah, Robbie wrote a piece of music for the beginning of the concert. And Anushka um, not only soloed at the beginning of it, then she conducted the rest of them. His wife was there and sang a song that Robbie had conducted for this. It was amazing. Now, when I listen to that concert, I do not skip to the Western music where they're playing George's music. I listen to that part first because it's just fascinating. Yeah, the music's so lovely. It connects us to something much deeper. And this is part of genetic memory, and part of our past lives. And, you know, I did rant a bit a little bit uh, the last time you and Robin and I spoke uh, and how, how bloody frustrating it is when people who don't know any better go to sites like uh, the History Channel when uh, Giorgio Suclos is talking about Vimana, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about Sanskrit text, and he, he does it with this sort of Hollywood familiarity, which means he probably doesn't read Sanskrit, and he probably doesn't speak it, but he knows about it, and this is the difference between having a first-hand experience or first-hand knowledge of something of actually holding these texts in your hand and reading from them as the pages flip forward by another teacher, because they're very old. And he teaches you or she teaches you how to read Sanskrit, and you go through a process of translation for yourself, but you can also, as a student, transliterate them. And I used to do that a lot, to learn Sanskrit symbols. And so I would write down in English what the phonetic translation was. So when someone says, what it says, uh, him says, you have to be able to translate that into 
uh, uh, English phonetics. And so it helps when you're learning different aspects of foreign languages. And the resonance, which is the most wonderful thing, is no different. When you're listening to sitar and, and six uh, beautiful, trained, classical Hindustani singers singing these ancient hymns, it's no different than being in a, a, a temple bell or a crystal bowl environment where you're receiving that deep, deep healing. And even though Kim Jim told me I am in my third incarnation on this world, he said that there are others that have lived for many lifetimes. But there is genetic memory. And because we're a universal family, from this side of the galaxy to the other, encompassing the rest of the universe, we're a universal family. So we all share these distinct commonalities that time delivers to us through existence. So your genetic records are being recorded by energy waves from the very ancient past. And as you're forming as a fetus, your spirit arrives, and those waves of energy from the universe that teach us ancient history, that teach us ancient sounds, pass through our souls. And those little musical notes in the form of frequencies and vibrations script themselves into your chromosomes and your DNA like tiny little light symbols. And they permanently arrange themselves so that you can look at them as a crystal light picture within the very biological existence of chromosomal chain. So this beautiful starlight is stopped by your DNA. And that's one of the fabulous mysteries of the double helix is that it has the ability to absorb starlight, absorb healing light, and retain it and distribute it, just like we retain or distribute information through our eyes or through our ears. So Indian music has a very deep, deep sonic vibration, which connects people immediately to some understanding on a deeper level of something that's better. So I sing different hymns from uh, a series of Hindu sacred books called the Shakti Bhat. And the Shakti Bhat carries many, many different forms of hymns and prayers within it. There's thousands. I sing uh, shlokas from the Shakti Bhat because I'm a romantic. Uh, I, I like to, to sing songs about love and sing songs about humanity receiving the concept of love. And so remember that when you go back further through the very, very oldest of the Vedic texts, you'll find information about Shiva arriving. You'll find information about golden orbs coming down. You will also find information about a war that happened between these giant celestial chariots that fought with nuclear bombs and lightning rays. It's all written down in these ancient, ancient texts. But that's another form of study that doesn't necessarily help me understand the deeper meaning of ancient ragas. Now, as a tabla player, I play, you know, a tintal, which is a very typical uh, rhythmic arrangement of uh, two groups of eight or four, four. And a tintal is a spoken language. So, you know, uh, it could be dagadana, 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 dagadana. It's like, you know, four fours. And you can play that in the background while the sitar is, you know, perhaps tuning up a little bit and he's going to come in. But normally at the beginning of an ancient, ancient hymn or an ancient piece of music, it starts very slowly and it goes through three phases. And those phases are known as an azap. The second phase is known as a gut. And the third phase is known as a jor. That's J-O-R, Jor. So the Alap, the God, and the Jor are the three components of our Raga. And the Alap is usually a sort of a melodious, universal sound that brings everybody interested because perhaps someone's going to sing an ancient hymn about how somebody received their intelligence. So there's also those songs that exist within ancient, ancient shlokas because most of the liturgy of ancient history is best taught through song or through writing, right? But song. And then, so when the North Indians were doing this for themselves, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 25,000 years, so were the very earliest tall, redheaded, and blonde, tartan-wearing uh, people of the Ural Mountains in the Soviet Union and Siberia. 
the Troubadour tribes lived there in uh, 8,000 BC. The way they taught their ancient history of the world, uh, the, uh, the different gods, uh, some were very similar to Nordic, like Krom. So those things were taught to each other, troubadours, the singers, and they would sing their history and play, you know, a violin or they'd play a, a, a hoop drum. And so that went on in the Caucasus Mountains, many, many thousands of years, all the way up to the very beginning of the Communist Revolution, where troubadours were seen as gypsies rather than instructed Russians building walls. So, but that sort of was the end of them. But the troubadours were not much different than uh, ancient Cambodian people who built Angkor Wat. You see, because the language of Cambodian, when you look at it, lots of little swirls and circles. Well, it looks very similar to Sanskrit, ancient Sanskrit. There's a lot of Sanskrit that looks like ancient Cambodian. And then when you combine Sanskrit and ancient Cambodian, and then you look at photographs of downed interstellar conveyance or parts like the Roswell plate where the hands are, if you look at the writing above those hands, it looks just like a combination of Sanskrit and ancient Cambodian. So our ancient language, ancient family, ancient DNA structures are based on vibration sound. So I was studying this stuff when I was 15. That's why I kept my mouth shut for four years after they took me away to another. I didn't want to be somebody going, oh, I want to, you know, get real famous like Giorgio Stuplos and throw myself in, in front of the bus. <laughs> you know, and so, it, and by the way, I think it, I was lucky too because I had my own business so nobody could fire me. For opening my mouth. I have to make my own money. So I'm pretty lucky the way that worked out too. And we were talking to Paula, uh, amazing conversation. I, I watched her, listened to her speak in that, that convo like three times. Um, she said some really interesting things about where you can be able to access joy. And when I listen to Indian music, I access joy right off the bat. I have a deeper understanding I'm not, you know, I can sight read a, a lot of Sanskrit, but not all of it. Sanskrit has uh, many, 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 many symbols. I don't know how many there are. It's many of the Chinese alphabet that I can tell you. And of course, like any language, Sanskrit has changed over the years. So when you go from the very ancient times of 12,000 years ago, then you move forward to the late 14th century. Right. I think or, we're just uh, getting used to the way we're meant to communicate. Well, and words, funny. the thing Modern. that get us in trouble are, right. you know, yesterday's news. Sound, vibration, man, why is that being in, put in our field so much recently? Oh, and we then, um, to remember. Yeah, well, right. Um, you keep referring to, I just keep coming up with symbology doesn't matter if it's Sanskrit or if it's something else. Um, when we look at old dialects, I see us, we're just getting used to looking at the symbols that were, have been left here a long time. Oh, so you got to ask yourself whether the, the um, beyond earth sentience that have been here and left their marks before long yeah. ago that these symbols to us are refreshing and new to them they've always used them <laughs> yes and this tells me that sound is fundamental to vision sight and seeing yes it's the i, I love learning multimedia it's my nature i i wasn't really a reader very much until I wanted to read about new information. But if you serve that up with a song, I'm good to go. Now, if you add video to it on top of it, oh, now you really got my attention. So I understand the nature of getting a sensation to as many of your senses as is possible, and then it sinks in. But I am more and more appreciating adding sound to symbols. Bang on, brother. And that's one of the conversations I've had with our friend Asher. Um, because I know whatever Asher is going through right now, we're here to support him. And uh, so he's busy. But he's also busy with uh, uh, an emotional inconvenience because he's a higher soul. and He knows that. 
So I want everyone to put out some good vibes for Aster. He's not in physical danger. He's just having an emotion. So well, everyone... we all did, and we're going to get back to that here in a moment because but really that was something. So that's what I, yeah. you know, as soon as I was able to have that first six months of realization after they got me, I was able to sit at my big desk at home and start making uh, paper models that were square and that holes punched in the center. And I was covering those center holes with a piece of flat, clear plastic. And I was taping all these different paper models together into a giant hoop so that they were very articulated. And then I was drawing different symbols. Some would just have straight lines. Some would be a circle within another one. Some would be a vortex. I was drawing all these different symbols on all these clear holes in a 30-piece articulated paper model. And then put it on my desk, make it into a geometric shape and shine a light through the holes. And so I started to see visions of hieroglyphs spinning. Started to see visions of Sanskrit symbols spinning. And then I started to see crop circle images being given to me, flashed from above. I'm just laying them on. This isn't my own generated thought of crop circles being turned into a two dimensional image, put upright and then spinning. And it makes these solid objects that are components. You take a crop circle, believe me, folks, you turn it into a two-dimensional shape. You put it on a on a on a stem that spins and spin at a very high rate. Put it on a gimbal and spin that thing at, at one thousand RPM or five hundred RPM. <laughs> You're gonna see it no a longer solid, looks two D. <laughs> you'll see a solid object, and each one of them looks like a component to an amazing machine. All of them, and I've done it. I've cut the damn things out and done it and spun them, you know. But all of this has to do with sound. And so from my earliest beginnings, I was attracted to Indian music. Just this real strong pull because I love the way it sounded. It was so, so pretty. And then um, the food was amazing. And then I found out that Hindus are extremely, extremely peaceful people like true Buddhists. They don't fight. They don't eat animals. You know, they feed whatever animals nearby that's starving. And I know many Americans take a personal front to every animal being fed, which is cobras, rats, uh, cows. There'll be stray cows, and a Hindu will make sure the cow has water and fresh grass. And if it's a hot day, the Hindu will make sure the cow has a comfortable place to lay down in the shade. You don't see that from people in the United States. So Hindus have a very ancient respect for all life. Because they're able to go, what if I was that cow? Yeah, what they respect I... people at a soul level. And then they respect people on the same level. That's why Hindus tolerate very, very unusual types of people. That's why they help people that are in the street. I have been to India, and I have seen some terrible, terrible slums. And it's just so sad. And it's sad for us because we have such abundance. There's a caste system. And yes, indeed, there's a lot of suffering, a lot. And the Indian government and the people are all trying to work on it. There's lots of wonderful charities and things are getting better for people that have a creek of feces outside their house. But every Indian person, God bless those people, I ever witnessed on the street in Delhi or in Bombay, which is now Mumbai, and getting on a train to go up to the Kashmir province is charity. Everybody has a rupee. So you give them rupee. Here's a rupee. Here's a pretty soon. That person who has really bad tuberculosis or has the crippling hand disease will be able to feed themselves and go buy another warm blanket. So they're just, all of them are such beautiful people. Now I've seen different versions of Hindus in Europe. Yes. And businessmen here in the United States. Yes. And so people change a little according to the society they move into. I think that's natural. When I was living in France, I spoke French and German. When I lived in Germany, I spoke German. And so when I lived in Spain, in the wine trade, I spoke Spanish 100% of the time. So we change when we go to different countries because we want to share what their experience is. But what transcends every experience, sound. Sound and music bring people together and 
joy, harmony. So I was really you know, lucky to have this thing that I wanted to go to, you know. And then, yeah, and when Grandpa found out, you know, and he was in the CIA, and Grandpa found out that I wanted to study Indian music, well, he flipped out and said, you know what it's like in that country. And so when I really showed him that I was a top student, then he said, right, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go live on an ashram in India. And he flipped out and yelled at me for like two hours, and then he paid for it. So everybody got what they want from grandfather, but you had to listen to him yell at you for two hours. And it was pretty scary. But uh, so I moved there, and then I came back, and I studied more. I moved up to Northern California, got to where I. So now, after having my experience, I watch these media channels, and I think it's all coming from a good place. You know, I think Giorgio Suplos has actually done a lot of good just by showing people UFOs or interstellar conveyance on the television. That makes people think some some way. So who cares? But what I like is is being able to put up or shut up. And then this is kind of what I ranted about the last time I spoke was that you know don't don't send me the name of a healing science. You know, if you're going to teach me Buddhism, teach me Buddhism. And just so you guys know, in Buddhism, Buddha, real Buddhists don't pray to Buddha. They thank Buddha. And when you see someone bowing to Buddha like that, and this is someone who gets on my tip. He's not a god. He was a teacher. So it's like, you know, as a, someone who loves physics, you know, James Clark Maxwell, I, you know, I send him praise, his spirit praise, because he helped us with the right hand rule and, 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 and taking the amperes and gauss relativity theory about magnetism. And he finally added the mu naught epsilon naught to show the empirical value and write the true equation for electromagnetism. God bless him. So, you know, he was the person that had the divine spark in the Victorian period in Scotland. And so he had that epiphany. Well, so I send him good vibes, too, just like I do to Buddha. <laughs> you know? So Buddha didn't want praise. He was just a teacher with good advice. And so we always have to acknowledge good advice. So I studied Buddhism. I studied Hinduism. And I wanted to, as a guy from California who used to be a surfer stoner, I wanted to be able to open my mind and accept the reality of other human beings. And at a young age, I understood that people were very important. But it took me all of my life, plus the meeting with Kim Jim, to access the region of my mind that allowed human beings to just be without judgment. And there's a big difference between allowing human beings to be and talking about their sovereignty when those human beings have done something wrong. And so... I don't judge because Jesus didn't judge. I don't judge because Kim Jim doesn't want me to judge people. Neither did Buddha or Confucius. But I, I do don't think when you say you don't because of them, I'll just finish this really quick. That's who you are. It just happens to coincide with their thought patterns. But that's who you are, my friend. Thank you. I am. Um, Thank you. That's very kind. And I guess that makes sense. You know, I, it also was a hard lesson to be able to take compliments and to receive gifts because of the way my grandfather raised me, my mom raised me, it was really like, you know, don't accept anything from anybody. And it's, you know. Yeah, givers, there's your lesson. That was the hardest one for me because I was just used to being the one who gave. I had to understand the nature of balance in the universe and when i was cutting off people wanting to give me whatever it was thanks gifts whatever i was blocking that i was choking off the flow of the universe by being unwilling to receive and until i let that go wow you know, things just opened up in a way that I didn't understand when I finally allowed somebody to give me something with gratitude. Oh, is that? Uh, but man, that's an adjustment that I had to make, and it wasn't my nature. Well, that's really interesting because, and uh, in one of the one of the things that we have to sort of break through or fight through as American with all the abundance we have, to think that a gift or giving is going out spending money on something, I think it's 
and this is another great lesson that I was able to learn from ancient Sanskrit, ancient Buddhist or Hindu texts, and having kind older teachers. Remember when I was 15, um, I always wanted a grandfather like Ravi Shankar. Ravi was very, very kind, very sweet, dear person. And when I first met him, I gave him three raw amethyst crystals. I think I was 15 and a half. And he took them and he just looked at them. They were really pretty purple crystals that had been pocket pieces since I was 13. So they were well-worn and beautiful, big diamond shapes. And he took them in his hand and he, he said, I can't accept this. This is so beautiful. And I said, you know, your music made me feel so good. Won't you please keep them? And he blessed me. And then since then, I was invited into the Ravi Shankar Music Circle when he found out that I was interested. But it was also that night that I met his best friend, Ala Raka. And Ala was a very generous, round, bald guy, older, very sweet, kind face. And he had a beautiful voice. And his son is Hector Hussein. Well, Ala's passed away too. And that broke my heart because he was one of my teachers for about five months when he visited LA. And every time he showed up, I would go and see him and sit with him. And his son, Zachary was just fabulous. I mean, when we were 15, he could he could play tabla like nobody's business. And I was, you know, working on the, the fundamentals. Most of the children in India that are given this treasure of playing music within a musical family are started out at the age of two or three because they're born with the sound. They, all the instruments are around them. And right away, they're babies and the young people are taught to be gentle with items, to walk gently within the house, to be conscientious and careful. So they, you know, because you knock over a sitar, man, those things are so expensive. They're all handmade and hand carved. And oh my God, a, a decent sitar will cost you 6,000 bucks just off the start. And that's a good student's one. And so you really, your children learn a lot too about respect and being conscientious because of, uh, the music produces this amazing sort of response in all humans to hear it. I mean, I had a hard time, too, believing me. I went off on my own up into the Hindu Kush. I was on a, a fort that I bought, and I was almost 17. No, I was almost 18. And uh, bloody hell, I ran into these guys that I guess were northern raiders. And just, you know, think of uh, the Mongol warriors from the times of Attila the Hunt. And they came up to me right away with banging me on the nose with the back of the rifle and knocked me out. But then they saw my tabla strapped to the horse and they woke me up. And they felt really bad about it. And out came the hash pipe, out came some, some uh, eucalyptus oil and a cotton swab and put that in my nose with these footprints. And And uh, we had a fire and they shared their food with me. And we couldn't speak each other and understand each other. I knew a little bit about it. But they handed me my tabla back and they asked me to play and sure enough out came a tar, which is a beautiful single-stringed instrument that you bow with your fingernail and it's one stick with one key turn and one wire and has a, a round wooden bowl with a skin stretched over it and has the most beautiful sound and then out came a, like a nacarina, like a small low-sounding flute. And these guys jam. And so I'm sitting out in the face of the Hindu coach with three guys that would have killed me if they thought I was a dumb American with money. And they didn't do it. And not only did they wake me back up and have a jam session with me, they let me stay with them for three days and we rode up into the Hindu Kush. They showed me where they went to go get Aquamarine, which is my birthstone. And they knocked off this beautiful piece of matrix with about 150 aquamarine crystals growing in it and they handed it to me. And then they told me to head back down to the valley. And it was in the wash, so I couldn't get lost. And oh my God, Lola, it was the most amazing adventure. And so I still have that chunk of aquamarine in my closet. You showed it to me. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So it's like, and, and Indian music did all of this for me when I was a boy. And so there was like, you know, with everything that I've done and all the fun I've had in life, there's no need to make up a story about Kim Jim showing up. He's sort of like finishing the process, you know, of like understanding. 
So then I started making these white models right away. And then much later, when we started talking about quantum hypertext publicly and shining light through the mathematic formula lenses to achieve a geometric value by looking at the different shape that the shadow produces, which then gives us the three-dimensional symbolological uh, reference to turn into another part of the great machine. Remember the Antikythera, the, the square box with the wheels in it that turned out to be a very complicated uh, planetary clock and astrolabe device? The one they found yes. in Antikythera, Greece, in the Mediterranean? Right. Well, I see crop circles and quantum hypertext and all of these different languages spinning in three-dimensional shapes and being put together in front of me like a massive Antikythera of cosmic proportions. And I'm building my way up to finding this mappable discovery that we could have blueprint diagrams of. So every component of mathematics and every component of higher dimensional thinking is being handed to me in a short period of time. And it's very difficult to deal with reality, you know, bills and roommates <laughs> and, and running a shop. Thank God for my son. He runs the shop so I can go sit on my ass and take a deep breath. So there's a huge volume of things that I'm trying to coordinate that are all cosmic messages and higher thinking messages about physicality and non-physicality. And then there exists this giant cosmic antikythera made from all these ancient languages, made from the shape of these different equations. Oddly enough, with my three-dimensional quantum images, there's Sanskrit symbols and ancient Cambodian writing symbols that when you spin them, they look oddly similar to the mathematics symbols. So there's repetitions of information that we're all supposed to be paying attention to coming to us on all kinds of higher levels. <clears throat> I get a little frustrated with people because they keep wanting to talk about their emotions. And your emotions are different. Your emotions are a chemical response to the stimulus that you receive from that sort of around you. They really are. You can have emotions from thoughts, but then again, why are you suffering from thoughts? Because those should have been left in the past. So I have a, a frustration issue where if you really want to understand what the work is that I'm doing, or if you want to understand quantum me mechanics on a higher level, according to their plan, not mine. Remember, they showed me quantum hypertext. They said that, you know, humans are writing with a two-dimensional or three-dimensional object a two-dimensional language on a one-dimensional sheet. So what does that tell you, David? Now pick those images up, turn them into a three-dimensional image and spin them in front of you so that you see their physicality and the higher purpose of the, the geometry of the symbol itself. As we taught you thousands of years ago how to record the symbols, but you've forgotten why. Right? You've got the language, you've got the sounds, you've got the music, you have the Akashic records, you have the Sanskrit hymns, you have everything but you've forgotten how to use them. So then I get images of the shofar being blown outside the walls of Jericho and how for, uh, what, seven turns around the walls of Jericho blowing on this down, the walls crumbled, turned into dust. And the walls of Jericho were, you know, legendary. They were 180 feet tall. They were 60 feet thick, made from stone that no, no army could ever penetrate. But when they blew those ram's horns, the vibration caused all the rock to crush into powder and drop. That's a true story. So we have all this information about sound. And now, once again, mainstream technology is using sound for levitation. And you can go on these little YouTube snippets to Mr. You know, whatever Brainiac Science Channel and watch somebody levitate this little piece of crap in a, between a bunch of speakers. Well, that's just the very beginning. But did you know that your body can produce those sounds? Not 
So you get all these different ranges. So when you get 50 other human voices nailing it at the same timbre, in the same sonic vibration that I'm nailing it at, then you create a massive sound wave that makes things change around you. So sound is crucial to understanding visually. And also we get those, you know, light vibrations that come back. We don't really see things, but we, we don't see light. We see what light does when it reflects off an object, right? Light is all around us, but we don't see it until we're looking at something. And then what you're seeing is the reflection that light produces. So we're never really seeing that which is around us, but it's like sound. It's an ethereal existence. It's a plane of existence. Light, sound, gravity are planes of existence. So, yeah, we, we understand that Spending your life in service to others will create your ability to awaken to your higher functions. And your higher functions will then become more clear. It's repetition. It's just like playing the piano or learning French. You have to do it over and over and over again. And you, Paula, and I were talking about repetition when we were reading, trying to remember quotes. Well, Paula's here. We should ah. see if she wants to chime in because I'm sure she's got some thoughts. I really am enjoying the conversation, to be honest with you. And I'm making a little veg soup. It's chilly in Texas. So right. it's a veg soup day. Yeah. But I'm um, loving the conversation for sure. I love the sound and the frequency. Telling you, um, I believe in my heart of heart, if you can shift the things that you receive from a frequency perspective, like music or even language, um, and uh, general information that you allow into your experience, I believe it will very much uh, express itself outwardly quickly. Yeah. Well, all of this started because the other day when we were recording for what we thought was going to be Dave's podcast, and we did this in the green room first, and so he shared this um poem um if you want to call it that and the capricorn part of me was fascinated because when dave began to sing there was some something caused it sounded like a chorus it sounded like there was another person singing an octave above him same words same cadence everything else and i was just so fascinated with it that i missed out on the freaking performance because in my little mind i need to tear this apart and go why is it i'm hearing another voice over his and at the end i went on and on about that and regretted that we had not recorded it because it was so compelling to me and it happened for the the whole duration I'm trying to think, is it, you know, the location in the store that's causing it? Or is it just something going through Dave? I believe that, you know, Dave was just, he understands by whatever training he's had to learn these songs, hymns, whatever you want to call them, Matt, he, there's a, a, a quality that he can add that resonance that makes it sound like there's more than one person freaking singing. That was why I really wanted to do this again to see if we could capture it again. I think some of it has to do with the residents in the room and stuff. And, you know, we're in production. I'm going to have to sign off in a couple minutes because uh, I got to open my front door. Yeah, it, I don't, I'm not a polyphonic singer, so I don't reach polyphonic levels. It's very difficult to sing polyphonic. Uh, but there's a resonance wave that's generated. It could be an echo or it could be ancient spirits that are also chiming in. I, I think that that can't be. Well, you know, I ruled out echo because echo would sound just like you. Repeat it. You, this was something that was an octave above where you were, and it was noticeable. I tried to separate yeah, it out. Timing, yeah. starlight, all starlight, you know. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad uh, Paula got some of that. Yeah, it was it was important though. I wanted to come on and, and give you guys the gift of uh, uh, Bethana, 
webinar is uh, looks like it's spelled Bandana, and uh, it's uh, not it's not Vandana, Webinar. And they're, they're, they're praise, they're songs of religious praise or heartfelt praise that you give to a goddess or a god or Mother Earth or someone who you admire greatly. And so those are all just parts of the different teaching processes. Um, so, you know, if you're going to study something, folks, study as much of it as you can. It's really important to stay in your own lane. So, you know, I also want to get on for these days and say, hey, look, you know, it's one thing me saying, you know, it's another to sit here and be able to you know, sing in Sanskrit and, and share with some of the, expense, uh, the expansive experience I've had that I think everyone should tune into some Ravi Shankar, take a deep breath, and listen to the whole album. I got to go because we're opening the door. Namaste to Lowell and Paul. You guys have a <laughs> If anyone checks in on that, that would be cool. I got to go. Namaste. Thank you for all the information. Hey, it's all fun. Have fun, guys. Well, there was a reason why we covered this information. It wasn't what we had intended. It wasn't what I had intended. So we'll be recording something again here soon. What happened last week was um, I had some interactions with some orbs, and I have been sorting that out um and the day before valentine's day without going into detail because i will uh, it, it's too far into the hour to begin but there was a moment i had where i was just wondering what am i doing here how did i get here why am i not you know kind of enjoying my retirement why am I not traveling like that? Why, why, why? And it took me, man, I, it was the whole day. I had to carry that through and something would happen the next day. But this, like I said, it's going to require a little more than the time we should allow now. So stay tuned. Um, I'm going to cover it because it wasn't just me. I had heard from Dave who had called me the, the next morning and had a similar kind of reflex, like just I'm done with this. I'm ready to walk away from it. I'm thinking about not doing this anymore and something shifted the next day. Uh, but I'll go into that again later so that you can appreciate. Ooh, that there, were there, there were physical changes that took place in my dimensional awareness that were, I said, unnerving politely. Honestly, yesterday was the day I was talking about it with Dave after it had happened several days ago, that it was the first time I can honestly say that I thought I had dealt with my fears and put that behind me. And there was, I was afraid that day. Wasn't that I hadn't seen and experienced extraordinary things before, and I'm okay with that. But when it strikes your physicality and it sets off circumstances that you can't turn off, it was it was unsettling the first time that this extended. You know, I talk about being able to see things, you know, in higher dimensions. And right now, man, the veil is super thin. And when you're in energetic areas and conditions are right, you know, this stuff just reveals itself. Well, I couldn't turn that off the other day. I was seeing things like through an ether and couldn't stop seeing it until I closed my eyes long enough that appears that appeared to be like a reset. But I had to go into a meditative state to it got that man it shook me like i hadn't been shook before i thought you know i was pretty grounded that threw me for a loop and it was you know the next day after that that i went you know what the hell am i doing here what what made me feel like that and what am i doing here so i know i started 
it's going to cause you all to listen to this, to listen to the next one for sure, because I'll expand on that. There were some other messages that came my way. There was other contact that took place. I swear there was a ship over the house because I heard that kind of engine type sound that I'd heard before. Um, so I will elaborate on it more. Um, that all happened the, the same day that I had posted some um, activity I found in the sky when I was just, you know, knew I was going to record some orbs out in the backyard the night of Valentine's Day. And that was kind of the end of this kind of recovery period I needed. But enough about that for now. I promise I will do more. But Paula, I'm sure you have an observation. So before I cut, cut off, um, why don't you give it to me? Well, I just, <laughs> I hate to pull you back into it. But <laughs> do you think it's like, like some kind of little premonition that you're feeling in your physical form for future endeavors or you feel like it was something in the here and now it's a there is a not that there is any energetic time space, shift. But. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's an energetic shift that just leveled me up differently mm. now i'm kind of trying to connect the dots it all of this happened after activations that happened wisdom spirit ranch they happened there this and this area is energetic enough and so there were downloads i got that i had to sit with to unpack and now that i understand what they are it is what cracked open the whole discussions and advisories about the golden tie all over again mm. so that's okay. what kind of triggered it and the solarians were those orbs that showed up so mm. i will go into more Can't detail about that. about that next week then yes because mm -hmm. the, i had a a higher aspect that came and explained you know what it all was okay. um okay i'm excited yeah those are just <laughs> my i am i am a listener this week i feel you know very grounded in what I'm doing right now. And uh, it's, you know, I was, I had kind of regretted because it was my intention to kind of open the door. Cause Dave and I were both feeling the same way last week. He mm -hmm. had reached out to me like a day before and he goes, mm, I, I might be done with all this. And mm. then that same kind of thing just kind of passed through my field. It was like, here was a moment where just stop the presses. Let's just stop for a moment to see what's around us here and analyze what are we doing here? How do we get here? And where are we going? It was one of those moments, but I hadn't had one of those. I'd always been curious about mm -hmm. the next thing that the universe was going to show me. That day was not it. But we'll get All into the powers more. in the present moment. Well, things shifted after that to show me an answer uh, in forms that I wasn't used to. I've certainly had many multidimensional experiences now that um, I'm used to. What I wasn't used to is it changing the physicality of my vision. That oh. was a little freaked out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, wow. uh, the first time it happened, it's almost like I'm seeing double vision. But it's in my periphery. So it's almost like you're looking through ethers out there. But all of a sudden, your horizon has expanded. And oh. the spectrums that you see oh. in it are elevated. I so see. when you close your eyes in a place where I've seen that type of thing on the mountain, when I'm alone in the forest. I haven't seen it in the neighborhood here. So the conditions yeah. that are here, there's animals in the lot next door. There's the occasional car that goes by. Mm -hmm. Historically, this is not the kind of environment where the vibration is high enough to have those experiences. So once I kind of put all that into check, then I couldn't stop it. So close my eyes and sat there for a good five minutes and when I opened my eyes, okay, we're back to what would be normal for me. Mm -hmm. Then it happened a second time. And that's when it got a little unnerving. Mm. It's exciting. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> Curse and blessing. Yes. So 
we'll elaborate on it more now that I've got you all teased to listen to the next one. I promise mm-hmm. I'll go into it more because there's information that was for everybody, not just for me, everybody. Okay. All right. Sounds great. All right. Great week.